as a former history teacher and as just a kind of general lover of history, one thing I've always marveled about um, in studying history is just the size of some of the decisions certain people have had to make at pivotal moments in history. Like um, when military leaders, when generals have had to give direct orders that they know are going to cost the lives of lots of their own soldiers. Just to have to be in that position and make that kind of a decision that you know is going to cost life. Those decisions have always fascinated me. It's um, Robert E. Lee. He said, uh, to be a good soldier, you have to love the army. To be a good commander, you have to be willing to order the destruction of that which you love. An example of this is in World War II. The Germans, they had this code called the Enigma Code that they would send all of their messages um, around in. They thought this was undecipherable. Uh, famously, the British deciphered that undecipherable code. And so quite literally, the Allies could listen into, in on and understand German messages that were being sent to different places in the war. But that led to a really unusual problem. The Allied leadership decided if every time we hear one of these messages, we can decode it, we understand it. If we change our plans immediately every time we hear one of those messages, they're going to figure out we can understand their messages. And they're going to change the code they use. And it was very important to the overall war effort that they continue to be able to hear and understand these messages. So here's what commanders did. Imagine making this, convers- uh, this decision. They would intercept a German message. They would learn of a surprise attack that was going to happen on this area of the battlefield. And on multiple occasions, they made the decisions not to warn their own troops not to warn their own battlefield commanders that that German attack was coming so that the Germans wouldn't know we can understand your messages. Even though they could have saved the lives of thousands of American and British and Canadian men, it was too important to the overall war effort. Can you imagine making that decision? Well, sometimes in life, this is why, by the way, Dwight Eisenhower, Ike, he was fond of saying there are no victories at discount prices. Sometimes in life, we can be attacked, we can be beset upon, and we know our supreme commander could have warned us could have done something. Sometimes it's hard for us to see the things that attack us, how this could be a part of the overall war plan. But it is. Today in the book of Romans, we're going to read really like our victory song. Paul's going to get all poetic on us today. 
It's almost like he writes a song in this passage. If Christianity had a fight song in the Bible, this might be it. This is our, the song of our triumph in Christ. But the victory we can already start to celebrate did not come at a discount price. It came at the high cost of the Son of God. And the battle continues to rage even though the war is already decided. Here's the way Paul's going to begin today. We're not ready to read our passage, but you can find it in Romans chapter 8 if you want. But here is how, here's how Paul's going to start today. First thing we're going to read this, is this little question. What, sh- what then shall we say about these things? Obviously, these things are, are stuff Paul has already told us previously in Romans. And here's, I am convinced, the things Paul is talking about is everything he's told us in the book of Romans up to that point. So for us, it's like the question that starts today's passage is this. What conclusion should we draw from the last seven months worth of sermons in Romans? What conclusion should we draw from everything Paul has said from Romans 1.1 through the end of Romans chapter 8? Since that's the way this starts, I think I need to give you the Cliff Notes version of these things. What is the conclusion we're supposed to come to at this point in the book of Romans? Well, here's what Paul's told us quickly in the book of Romans. Paul started uh, by giving us the main idea of the book of Romans. This was Romans 1, 16 and 17, where Paul told us that the gospel is the only way that God can point his power at people in a way where they are saved instead of being condemned. The gospel is how God's righteousness works its way out and people are still saved, are rescued by God instead of being condemned by God. Paul told us from the beginning, that's what this book is going to be about. Everything else supports that sort of thesis statement. To prove that that is true, Paul started, here's the three sections of the book of Romans we have covered so far. Paul started from 118 through 320 to tell us all about our need for the gospel. In, in that first section of the body of the book of Romans, Paul wanted to make sure every one of us knows if we stand before God based on our own track record of behavior, we are going to be condemned by God and he's going to be right and just to do it. We will have, Paul said, no excuse. We're without excuse. Nobody's going to stand before God and say, but, 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 but here's why you shouldn't condemn me. There won't be any excuses, and we will know that. He said, there's no one righteous, not even one. That's, that's the first section, why we all need to be rescued by God, because we will all be condemned based on our own behavior. That was section one. Section two, Uh, was 321 through 428. That's where Paul laid out the gospel, the rescue plan of God. Uh, That, we could probably subtitle that section, justification by faith alone. The greatest need anyone has is to be justified before God. Justified just means to be declared righteous. 
Nobody is getting into heaven unless God thinks they are righteous. In the first section, Paul told us, how many people are righteous? None. Not even one. But we need righteousness. So the gospel is about how God justifies people apart from works, apart from their behavior, apart from their religious duties. And Paul let us know we are justified by faith alone. If you believe that what Jesus did on the cross, he was doing to take the punishment and the penalty your sins deserve, God promises to justify you, declare you to be not guilty. That's section two. And today we're going to conclude the third major section of this book, which is all about the hope we have if we're justified by faith, the hope that we have because we've accepted the gospel. In this section, Paul started by telling us we have peace with God. Not we hope when we stand before God, he's okay with us. We're not sure. We'll see if we've done enough by the time we get there. If you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God. And then at the beginning of chapter eight, he said, you have no more condemnation because you're in Christ Jesus. That's where we've been so far before we start today. And Paul starts with that question so what should we, what conclusion should we draw from all of that? Today, we're going to read about that conclusion. Let's read our passage. This is Romans chapter 8, and we're going to finish the chapter, start in verse 31, and we'll read the rest of chapter 8. Romans 8, 31 through 39, they read this way. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the conclusion of the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. What is in there? Well, we're going to start in the first half of this passage. We're going to kind of skip that introductory question. What should our conclusion be? And in the rest of verse 31 and verse 34, here's what Paul does. He, gives, he asks three questions, but he doesn't answer them. He asks three questions, and he just leaves the answer hanging in the air. He wants us, he wants you and I to come to the correct answer to these questions. He does give 
For each question, he gives a non-answer. And what I mean by that is, he asks a question, and he doesn't tell us what the answer is. He just tells us one thing the answer isn't. It's like a non-answer, you know what I mean? Like if the question before us was, on what day does school start this year? And I said, well, it's not Friday. That'd be the question and one non-answer. Get it? All right. Three questions in the first half of this passage. Here's the first one. In second part of verse 31, Paul asks this question. If God is for us, who can be against us? There's the question. And if we keep reading, we're going to see Paul gives us this non-answer. It's not God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with giving us Jesus, freely give us all things? Who can be against us? Not God. Paul asks the question. He doesn't tell us who can be against us. He just tells us God can't. Why not? How do we know God can't be against us from this verse? Verse 32, what Paul tells us there is God can't be against us. Here's why. God, the Father, he was against his own son so that he could be for us. Who can be against us? Well, I don't know. I won't tell you yet. But we know it's not God. Because God has done the most difficult thing imaginable so that he can be for us. The price of God being able to be for us was his own son killed on a cross. And God paid that price already. So God won't, now that he's paid the largest price, the price required to be for us, He's not going to be against us because he did what it took to be for us. Does that make sense? That's what Paul says. Now, every, will God do other things for us besides merely give us Jesus? Yes. Paul reminds us uh, he's going to freely give us all things. Has Paul told us he's going to give us all things before this point in the book? He says we are co-heirs with Christ. We're the adopted sons and daughters of God, and we're going to inherit how much stuff if we're Christians? Everything. Does that sound too good to be true? But someday you are going to be a co-inheritor of everything that's Jesus's, which is everything. Well, I'll tell you, that's light work compared to what God did to win that for you. Giving you all things is nothing compared to God giving you the one thing that you needed. His own, his one and only son. So there's the first question. Is God for us? What's the answer to that part? Is God for us? Yes. If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't tell us. But we know it's not God. Question number two. In verse 33, who will bring any charge against God's elect? Or your Bible might say, who will bring any accusation against God's elect? Who will accuse, who will testify against one of God's elect? And we, we learned last week that God's elect is, is anyone who is justified by faith, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. 
The question is then, who will accuse or bring a charge against somebody who's justified by faith? Guess what the non-answer is? It's not God. Who will accuse us? Who will charge us? Paul doesn't say, but he tells us who won't. God won't. Do you know, O Christian? Do you know, O Christian? So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God is no longer collecting evidence against you to use at your trial where he will determine your eternal fate. He is no longer investigating you, collecting evidence so that he can level those accusations against you and those charges against you at your trial. Do you know that? Do you know why? Paul tells us, God doesn't accuse believers. It is God who justifies. What does it mean that God justifies? He declares somebody to be righteous. God is no longer in the business. If you are a Christian, God is no longer in the business at at charging you or accusing you with being unrighteous. That's what justifies means. The gospel tells us that our sin was imputed unto Jesus Christ. Was Jesus accused? Were there charges against Jesus? Yes, Paul tells us our sin, that those accusations were leveled against us in him. Our sin was imputed unto him. That means he was made to look to the Father. Jesus was made to look to the Father like he had sinned every sin that anyone has ever sinned. And then he, was a, then he was punished accordingly. The other end of that trade-off, our sin went on him. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God takes his righteousness and imputes it to you, puts it on your account. So that now you look like he was made to look like he sinned all of your sin. To God, if you believe in Jesus, you look like you lived the life Jesus lived that you never sinned any of the sins you sinned. You look like his sinlessness. You don't look like how you've missed the opportunities to do what you should have done. You look like you did every wonderful thing that Jesus ever did. That's justification. So God is no longer investigating you so that he can charge you later. Who will bring a charge against you? Who will accuse you? Not God. Because your trial is over. You have already had your trial before God. Do you know that? The gavel has already dropped. Your trial took place 2,000 years ago. It was inside the walls of Jerusalem. It was at night. There were charges against Jesus that were false. But the charges against you and me were very real. And God put those charges on his son and punished Jesus for our sin. So who is the one who just who is the one who will charge, who will accuse? Not God. 
Third question. Who is the one who will condemn? What's the answer? Not God. Because Jesus was condemned in our place. We had our trial 2,000 years ago. Jesus, we in Jesus were declared guilty, sentenced to execution. He was taken outside the city and he was executed. For whose sin? Mine and yours. So who is the one who will, who will, who will condemn? Not God. You know why? Because Christ was condemned so that you don't have to be. And more than that, he was raised. You know, did your sin cause the death of God's son? Yes or no? Did your sin cause the death of God's son? Yes. If someone else's sin caused the death of your son, would you still be mad? Because I would. But God's not. You know why? God is not still sore at you because you killed his kid. You know why? Because he didn't stay dead. He's raised. And he's just, he is better now than he was when he was on earth because he's in his full glory. And now, not only, not only is he better, he is at the right hand of God constantly interceding for us. Here's the way this works. I love the thought of this. I hate that I make him do it, but I love the thought of this. Every time I sin, does God still know when you sin? But wait a minute. The Bible says he throws that into a sea of forgetfulness, which means God just doesn't even know, right? No. It doesn't. It means he doesn't act in response. Story for a different sermon. Every time I sin, God the Father knows it, and his son is right there beside him saying, I covered that one, Dad. I, got, I picked up the tab on that one, Dad. This one is mine. We don't accuse. We don't condemn. And it's not that the Father needs reminding, but I still love the thought that Jesus is constantly getting involved every time I sin. Saying, Dad, you can't be angry at that because I swallowed your anger for that. So here's what we have so far. I'm asking for some audience participation here. I want you to answer these questions when I ask them. Ready? Here's where we're at so far. Is God for us? Yes. All right. If God is for us, who is against us? Not God. If God's for us, who can accuse us? Not God. If God is for us, who can condemn us? Not God. Okay. So we have been told who the answer is not. But is there an answer, a different answer to these questions? Who can be against us? Who can accuse us? Who can bring charges against us? Who can condemn us? How would you answer that? If God is for you, who can be against you? Be careful and be honest. Because I think it's really easy to give what I think is a dangerous answer, but a kind of a churchy answer that seems like the right answer that I think is not the right answer. I think it's really easy to answer this this way. Uh, if, is God for you? Yes. Then who can be against you? Nobody. 
Nobody can be against me because Jesus loves me. Nobody can accuse me. Nobody can condemn me. It's easy to think that's the answer, and I'm convinced that is not the right answer. I don't think that's what Paul wants us to think. Because if we're honest, can people be against us? You ever get accused of something you didn't do? Do Christians get condemned? See, if we, if we kind of shout the amen to nobody can be against us, all right, yeah, what happens when we say that in here and then we go out there and I'll be darned, people are against me. People I love. People accuse me. People condemn me. Here's what will happen. I will think something has gone totally haywire in my faith. And I will fight fights I had not a fight. Using weapons I had not a pick up. Toward goals that are not to be my goals. Think of Paul's original audience. Here's one reason why I do not think Paul wants us to think nobody can be against us. Here's the way this letter would have worked. Paul wrote this, sent it uh, by way of somebody he trusted to the church in Rome. They would gather together someplace, maybe in smaller groups, or maybe, I don't know how many people were in the church at that time, but they would get together and they would just listen to this letter from Paul be read out loud all at once. And I picture this in my mind's eye. This is first century Rome, like the year 58. And in my mind's eye, I imagine this. And I imagine the reader getting to this part. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can accuse us? Who can condemn us? And I imagine somebody sitting in the back row. Some little Roman guy. I imagine him wearing a toga because he's Roman. And I don't know if they all wore togas, but that's the way I think. To me, he looks like the Little Caesars pizza commercial guy. Okay? But whoever he is, I think he raises his hand and he stops the reader and says, Hey, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I mean, I hear Paul asking, who can be against us? Let me tell you, since I converted to Christ, my entire family is against me. I've been disowned. They all get together and eat and won't let me in. And I imagine somebody else being emboldened by that. And they go, yeah, now that you mention it, like I lost my job and my career when they found out I, could, I converted to Christ. So you could say, like, I got condemned in my career because I converted to Christ. What do you mean, who can, be, who can condemn us? My, my boss did. And fast forward just a few years. And what's going to start happening is the Roman emperor Nero is going to bring the full weight of the power of the Roman Empire against Christians. Who can be against us? The entire Roman Empire? And Christians will be accused of causing every bad thing that's happening in the empire. That's the way it went down. And we have, I won't go there, we have evidence that Paul knew this was coming. 
when Christians begin to be rounded up and executed, when they begin to be rounded up and they're put in venues like the Colosseum, but also smaller ones, and they're shoved out into a public arena, and across the arena, a gate slides open, and hungry lions walk out in the arena. And this is entertainment for the rest of the non-Christians to watch the lions eat us. I don't think what was going through these original Christians in Rome, I don't think what was going through their mind was, it's a good thing those lions can't be against us. And I don't think that should go through our mind either. Some of you have people who are against you right now. Some of you stand accused right now. There are Christians all over the world who are condemned to die right now. The good news is I think this is why Paul doesn't answer these questions. He wants us to answer. Who is against us? Do you have, do you know people who cancer is against them? There's a disease condemning them to death right now? Answer the question, just be honest. The good news is, these aren't the main questions in the passage. The next one is, the big question of the passage comes in verse 35 where Paul asks this, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And this time, Paul's not going to leave that question hanging. He's not going to give a non-answer. He's going to answer this baby emphatically, deliberately, so that none of us miss the answer. And this is the big one. First, I want you to notice this word right here. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? When Paul talks about things that we think separate us from the love of Christ, most of it isn't whose, it's stuff, it's circumstances. But Paul wants us to still be thinking of these. Who is against us? Who, is accuses? Who can accuse us? Who can condemn us? Are there people that can do those things? Yes. But now this, who among them can separate you from the love of Christ? Of Christ. Can your boss be against you? Can he or she accuse you? Can he or she, at least in your career, condemn you? Can your boss separate you from the love of Christ? Young people, can the mean kids at school Can they be against you? Can they accuse you, deride you, condemn you? Can the mean kids at school separate you from the love of Christ? Parents, can the mean kids at school that accuse and are against and condemn your children, can they separate you from the love of Christ? Can a government separate you from the love of Christ, even if it can't be against you, accuse you, and condemn you? Your business competitors, can they be against you? 
Can they separate you from the love of Christ? We could do this all day. I do want to do just one more. What about you, yourself, in your own mind and your own heart? Can you do stuff that is against your own best interests? Can you do stuff you know is just going to hurt you and do it anyway? Then can you get stuck accusing yourself, bringing charges against yourself, condemning yourself? There's no way. How could I be? I, probably I'm not even a real Christian. How could I? How could God possibly love me? I don't even love me. Let me tell you something. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can't even condemn you. You can't even separate you from the love of Christ. Some of you need to write this one down. It's one of my favorite verses. 1 John 3.20 In whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. But Pastor Matt, you don't know what's going on in my life. What if the stuff these other people do to me what if I find myself in the middle of, oh, I don't know, let's say trouble or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Would that mean I've been separated from the love of Christ? You're telling me even if I'm in serious trouble, so much so that I'm in distress, I'm being persecuted, I don't have enough to eat or drink, I don't have enough shelter to protect and clothe my family. I'm in serious danger in a war-torn land. Would I be separated from the love of Christ then? Don't answer it yet. He still hasn't even answered the question. There's more. Verse 36, what if for the sake of the Lord, we're being rounded up and slaughtered. What if in a certain part of the globe at a certain time, the powers that be decide this place would be a lot better without Christians? And they start rounding up Christians and slaughtering and executing them. Has that ever happened in the, over the course of church history over the last 2,000 years? Absolutely. And don't think this is just a Roman thing. It is happening right now, today. What about then? What if the authorities think they're doing the rest of the world a favor by killing you? Would that mean you are separated from the love of Christ? I don't even want to answer the question yet. But I do want to ask you this. Why is that the big question? What makes this question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? What makes that a bigger question than the last one? Yeah, you get it. I don't want to go back there. What makes this the big question? Who can separate me from the love of Christ? Here's why. Boy, when you get accused, when people are against you, when you are being condemned, your brain, your heart will tell you there's nothing more important than that. And Paul says, oh, yes, there is. Whether or not you are separated from the love of Christ has eternal consequences. If you, are, if you are being loved by Christ, if the love of Christ is on you, you have met him at his cross, you've accepted what he did on your behalf, and God's eternal love on you isn't going anywhere. You're a co-heir in Christ. You have been promised everything forever. Infinity for eternity is yours. And let me tell you, persecution, 
and distress and famine and nakedness and danger and the sword. Those things are temporary and eternity is forever. This life is short and eternity is long. That's why this is the big one. This is the big one. Paul finally answers it in verse 37. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? What's the answer? No. No. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? How about all those people that get me in trouble and make me, make me experience all that stuff? Will any of them be able to separate me from the love of Christ? No, but pay attention to this next word. In. Boy, I would circle or underline that one in your Bible. That is the word that lets me know that Paul does not want us to say, nobody can be against us. Nobody can, excuse, can accuse us. Nobody can bring charges against us. Nobody can condemn us. What's that word in mean? That means whatever overwhelmingly conquer means, we do that in all of these things. Can people be against you? Can they accuse you? Can they condemn you? Can they cause trouble and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword or sword? Can they round Christians up and start slaughtering them? Yes. Will that be enough to separate you from the love of Christ? Will that happening to you mean you have been separated from the love of Christ? No. In all these things, we can do something Paul calls more than conquer or overwhelmingly conquer. The promise is not, if we're good Christians, God will keep that terrible stuff from happening to us. That's not the promise. The promise is we can overwhelmingly conquer while it's happening. What's that mean? I'll tell you in a minute. Paul ends the passage by answering the same question the same way from a little bit different angle. He says, I am convinced completely persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come not height not depth not any other created thing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord put simply here's what Paul says there's not anything any power there's not a condition there's not a disease there's not a distance there's not anything that could ever separate a believer from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And notice, it's not just that they won't get away with it. They're not able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Because God is sovereign. God's plans can't be thwarted. God's already decided in your favor. Now, this is fantastic news. But it doesn't mean your life's going to be any easier. 
does all this mean? How, do, how should this work out in real life? If the promise is not, you tell me what I have to do so that none of that bad stuff happens to me, if that's not the passage, the passage is, that stuff can absolutely happen to you. God will still love you when it does. That's the passage. So how should that impact us, affect us? Well, when people are against us, when they accuse us, when they work to condemn us, what is the most natural reaction in the world? What does your heart and your brain want to do when someone's against you? You want to be against them. If they accuse you, what do you want to do? You want to accuse them. They condemn you. You want to condemn them. But what our hearts want to do, we want to get in the ring. Oh, you want to fight? Oh, I see. That's how we're going to do this. So let me tell you how I'm about to conquer you. And so if somebody else wants my position in this social group, if I can crush them and conquer them, I'll get it. Somebody else wants my position on the team, if I conquer them, defeat them, I'll get it. Somebody else wants this market share, this sale, this promotion, I'll crush them and I'll get it. We can conquer the people who are against us. Some of them. Win some, you lose some. Here's what our hearts want to do when people are against us, when they accuse us, when they work to condemn us. We want to dive in and be against them harder than they're against us. Conquer them more than they can conquer us. But when we do that, what are we fighting for? We're fighting to not be separated from the money I might lose if I don't conquer here. From the social status I might lose if I don't conquer here. From the position I might lose if I don't conquer here. And so we'll jump in and we'll fight and we'll scheme and we'll use weapons we should never pick up to try and win things we're not supposed to be trying to win. But in Christ, we can more and conquer. You know what that means? If you are my enemy and we were fighting over a hundred bucks, I could in some way conquer you so I get the hundred bucks. If I more than conquer you, I could help you work for me to bring me the hundred bucks. Does that make sense? More than conquering is taking what is against me and using it for my greater goal. More than conquering is having the goal I'm supposed to have in this life, glorifying Christ, making Jesus look good. And now we can go back to that list. Anything that comes against us from that list can come against us. But if I want to more than conquer... How do I use that? Use that for my goal of glorifying Christ. Then I win by losing. Then that thing that is against me becomes an ally in my greater goal, even though it's trying to destroy me. Has that ever happened to the church in the last 2,000 years? Some power that be tries to stamp out the church, and all they do is make the martyr's blood cry out. 
the testimony of their faith. We can do that every single day. I want to show you one example. A friend of mine named Paul Knott. He's the pastor of Hastings Berean. His son's name is Jason. Uh, Lincoln Berean produced this video. It's for Christmas Eve. See a baby in a manger and Christmas lights. Don't be thrown off. I just want to show you this video, and then we'll talk about more than conquering a little bit more. My name is Jason Knott, and I've served as a pastor at Lincoln Brand for five years. And uh, my wife and I have two kids. We've got uh, Ethan, who is 11, and Michaela, who's nine. And they're the best. Love them. Uh, Melinda and I have been married. We're coming up on our 14-year anniversary. Uh, December 30th, so. So a year and a half ago, uh, life was going fantastic. Our kids were thriving. Uh, I was, I loved my job. I was just loving that. And really on the way to a family vacation out to uh, Yellowstone, started noticing when I was driving my left thumb, I couldn't pull it back. And I just thought that is the weirdest thing. So after coming back from vacation, my hand kept getting worse. And uh, so went into a doctor and they looked at it, they thought it was a pinched nerve. I actually even had surgery for that. But after that, I felt like there, there's something more to this, I think. So I ended up going to a neurologist. The doctor went to see both of them and I, and I knew that at that point, probably something was pretty serious once he'd done all the testing. And we got in there told us that it was ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. The type that I have is very aggressive. Uh, most people don't live beyond a year and a half um, from first symptom. So we're wrestling with this diagnosis. I would say it was 
there's, there's fear, there's frustration, there's sadness, there's anger every single day. I, I face battles that I've never faced before. And in some ways, I, didn't know how, I don't know how to walk this through. I don't know how to do this. And so I feel an incredible need for something outside myself. I don't have it within me. ALS is a horrible disease. Man, I want a cure. I would love to be healed from it. I'd love to spend more time with my family. I'd love to be here longer. Um, but as awesome as it would be to heal, be healed from that, Jesus came to do even more than that. And we all have a deeper disease within us. And that disease is sin. We need reconciliation with God. We need to be reunited with Him and cut ourselves off from Him. And, uh, and He came to offer that, to offer a free gift. An incredible gift that goes beyond and, and it's awesome because He will, I will raise His hand again someday. He will make everything new. And all the pain and sadness and hurt will be, will be no more. We'll have no more crying and no tears. And I, I, I can't wait for that day. So He's going to renew it all. But he wants a relationship with me. And he wants a relationship with every one of us. And he came to die, rose from the grave, to, to make that happen, offer that free gift of salvation. I want a relationship with you. Will you accept my love? Will you, will you move towards me? I would say that I feel some great things happening in my body. I, I, I'm wondering. I'm wondering if this is going to be history making. It's possible. It's possible this medication might work. But that's also not my ultimate hope. I'm going to die someday. All of us are going to die someday. And if I survive ALS, if I'm one of the first in the world to survive it, I will die someday. So there's got to be something greater. My hope is not in this medication, even if it does save my life. And that's really what Christmas is about. It's about Christ being with us. And that he's come into our darkness to bring us hope. That's more than conquer. Is there something against Jason? I'd love to show you his latest video, but you know what? You can't understand him. It's attacked his diaphragm so much and his vocal cords so much that it's really difficult, especially in a big room, to even understand what he's saying. But let me tell you what he's saying. Jesus is better. He's got a still good. I am going to be healed. I'm going to raise this hand again. It's the same message. You see what he's doing? He's taking that which was against him, which is trying to destroy him, and he's using that to work toward his greater goal of glorifying Jesus Christ. And you can do that with whatever is against you. Here's how. Do you want to do you want to spend your life just with all these fights trying to conquer everyone who's against you? 
Or do you want to more than conquer? Here's how. You got to be honest. What's against me? I have to be honest. Who or what is against me? Then I have to ask myself, what is the essence of this fight? What am I actually fighting for? Because there's a very sneaky way to empty into the battle or to enter into the battle and just think, hey, I'm still going to fight for what I actually want. I'm just going to try to pretend. I'm just going to try to be a Christian about it. I'm going to not sin. I'm going to not use bad words. And then you can't tell me I've done anything wrong when I'm still just fighting for me and what I want. But that's conquering. You can do that. You'll still go to heaven. But you can more than conquer. Who is against me? What is the essence of the fight? And who is never, ever against me? And then I ask myself this question. Do I want to work to conquer who or what is against me? Or do I just want to be with the one who never is against me? And so how can I use what is against me to glorify Jesus, even if I lose what is the essence of the fight they bring? I know I've gone along, but it was important. Let's pray and we'll sing a song about victory and go stay in the fight. In fact, why don't you stand up right now and we'll pray. Father God, thank you so much for conquering sin and death on our behalf, but now you've left us in this battle, Lord. You've left us in these battles where there's all these things that are against us. We are accused. We are uh, we're knocked down, but we're not destroyed. We're all that stuff, and people can condemn us. Lord, help us to see the things against us as things we can use to more than conquer. That They can be what you use to glorify yourself through us, though it kills us, though we lose. Help us cling to the one who will never be against us, who will never accuse us, who will never condemn us because we are not separated from the love of Christ and lead us to more than conquer. In Jesus' name, amen.